1: Welcome back to the Good Fight Radio Show. I'm your host, Chad Davidson of Good Fight Ministries. What you're about to listen to right here is an interview that Pastor Joe Schimmel and myself just conducted with Dr. Gary Habermas, who is the foremost scholar on the planet concerning the resurrection. But not only is he a marquee historian on the resurrection, he also has dug in deep concerning the Shroud of Turin, as well as dealing with doubts. So we are so excited for you to hear from Dr. Gary Habermas. I'm going to switch a little bit off the resurrection, but this obviously has a big a big to do when it comes to the resurrection. And when, you know, I was talking with Pastor Schimmel about this because he actually did a message a number of years ago on Resurrection Sunday, specifically on the Shroud of Turin. So I know that Joe has some questions he wants to ask you regarding the Shroud because you've written a number of books on the subject as well.
2: Yeah, Gary, I just, uh, instead of asking anything specific to begin with, what do you feel are the strongest uh, evidences that the Shroud of Turin may indeed be Jesus' burial cloth?
3: Well, I think if I could answer it this way, uh, if, if, you'd, if you'd said, uh, what are the strongest evidences that this is a real artifact of a man who's been crucified. It hasn't been faked and so on. I would give a list of the most difficult things to explain on the shroud and close to the top would be a series of them. And I'll just say a few of them real quickly. There's no paint dye powder or any foreign substance on the shroud which would account for the image. I mean, there's insect parts, there's pollen, you know, there's things on a cloth that's gonna be out in the open sometimes, but nothing that could account for that image. Uh, secondly, the image is three-dimensional. Now, that means if you take a photo, and well, what happened was with, with some researchers in the 70s, some uh, professors, doctors Jackson, Jumper, and others, in the uh air force academy they took these photos of the shroud and put them in a vp8 image analyzer computer and they noticed that unlike other photos if you put other photos in there the photos of the shroud were 3d and what that means is they could tell that the cloth touched the body in certain high points the man's laying on his back and he's uh He's got a cloth around him. And so the cloth is going to be around. It's from head to toe lengthwise. And so the cloth is going to be across. You can imagine cr- across the fore, could touch a forehead, going to touch the nose, going to touch the chin, going to touch the chest, not going to touch the rib cage. And one of the knees is raised up because the body's in a state of rigor mortis. So the the sheet is going to be draped over the knee that's up high. Maybe not the knee that's low, but the point is the whole the whole body is on the cloth, representative of the cloth, even parts that didn't touch. Now, when you try to explain how does an image jump across space and do so carefully, what's called columnated, it, it jumps across in ways that are straight up and down. It's not gaseous. There's no painting. That's number two, I think. I, I, that's probably the, the biggest reason. The uh, 3D. Another major reason is a lot of people believe that there are a number of scientific tests in universities where the image on the cloth is radiation. Radiation from a dead body. Now if this is a dead body of a crucifixion victim, and if you can in any way attach it to Jesus, and that's another argument, but the fact that if, if, the three, if the image is 3D, if the image is 3 and then there's also evidence of, of x-rays, it's a type of photograph. And that's really strange. In fact, uh, some researchers have counted what they believe are teeth that you can see through the upper and lower lip. Now, I don't mean his mouth was ripped open and you could see his teeth. I mean, you can see the teeth through the closed mouth. So the mouth is closed. And you can still see the teeth through. So the, the image is coming through. That's very difficult. Uh, I'll just give you one more. The image is superficial. If you get a thread that has 200 fibrils and a little tiny thread, the, the shroud image would only be on the top fibril a portion of the top, like maybe halfway on the top fibril. It doesn't sink into the cloth like almost everything we know. Even like powder would sink into cloth. Um, certainly, paint, dye, foreign substance, sweat—you're going to the image is going to be created by other things. But the image in the shroud is super is uh, superficial. So I think those are the biggies. Those are some of them. No paint, dye, powder. Image is superficial. It's 3D, and the uh, the evidence points to it being radiation from a dead crucified body. You put those together and you get some pretty compelling evidence.
1: So, you know, some people have said, hey, they've dated this thing. This thing's way dated after Jesus. So what would you say to those who said, hey, this has been radiocarbon
3: dating. We know it can't be from the time of Jesus. Yeah. The the date they came up with was the 13th to the 14th century, this 1200s to 1300s, uh, plus or minus. And there's been a lot of complaints about that. For example, uh, a uh, an article was published in a peer-reviewed secular chemical journal years ago by the top chemist on the team. And he argues that the cloth that was dated is not the, it, it was different than the actual shroud. He doesn't mean somebody pulled a fast one. He means that they may have dated, there, there's a bunch of patches on the shroud because the shroud went through some fires and there are patches on the shroud and he, he argues that they got wrong material. They didn't date the shroud itself. and didn't give scientific evidence for the, the cloths doing different things under a microscope. The, the biggest critique of the carbon dating lately was done actually by a friend of mine, uh, Tristan Casabianca. And he worked with some statisticians. There were four of them in the team. He was a lead author of an article that was published in an Oxford journal. and what they did was they took the dates that they got from three labs in 1988 the labs were in arizona uh oxford and uh switzerland and um and you know no question about the facilities and the dates they got were like all over the place And I don't know exactly what they did at the beginning, but they apparently did some averaging of dates instead of taking all the dates. And, And these statisticians got together and they said, it's totally illegitimate. You can't take dates and average them with dates that are this far apart. The whole experiment's anomalous. It doesn't show anything. So what came out of this was we don't know what date the shroud is, but it's sure not the date you said it was. That's for sure. And it was published in a, uh, an Oxford journal called Archaeochemistry, a very well-known journal that does a little, combines archaeology
2: and uh, chemistry together. Very good. Uh, Dr. Habermas, uh, we love to deal with typology uh, in our fellowship and also with our, our ministry. We just think it's um, incredible. And we know when Jesus on the road to Emmaus and he talked to the two disciples, he opened up their, their minds that they might understand better uh, the scripture and understand is is the gospel, the resurrection. He preached to them, you know, or shared with them through the, the law and the Psalms and, and the prophets. Uh, and of course, we all wish we could hopefully someday, maybe God, the Lord has that recorded that entire <laughs> Bible study he had with them. But uh, I can't help but think that when he showed his resurrection in the Old Testament, he might have used uh, different typologies. It's certainly uh, prior to that time he talked about before his death, burial and resurrection, the sign of Jonah, you know and that being a picture of his death, burial, and resurrection. Uh, and of course, you know, certain things come to mind, especially Paul talking about he's the first fruits of the resurrection, and the first fruits being on the day after the morrow, the morrow being uh, Saturday, the Sabbath, crucifixion being uh, the Passover day, he was crucified on the day after the morrow, was first fruits, and that being Sunday morning, and him being the first fruits of the resurrection. Paul seems to draw those parallels in First Corinthians, not only with the uh, Passover lamb, but also with the first fruits, and these being pictures in the feast days, are there any typologies that you like in the Old Testament, perhaps, or pictures of the resurrection that you? And these may not be used in the debates necessarily as evidences that we share with non-believers, but just as a, as the a devotional aspects. I mean, I believe we can use them. Uh, certain, certain, certainly use it uh, as weight of evidence, but not really talking about the evidence so much. But for us as believers, uh, what encourages you personally when you think of some of the? Divine hand of God providentially working through the events of history, showing forth maybe pictures of the resurrection in the past.
3: My favorite one, you've already mentioned it. In fact, you mentioned it first, I think. My favorite one easily would be Jesus comparing what was going to happen to him to what happened to Jonah. And, you know, as Jonah's three days and three nights in the belly of the fish, the great fish, it doesn't say whale there, by the way, but great fish. So will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Now, a lot of people, that's a problem for them. They think there's a problem with three days and three nights because that's not from Friday to Sunday. I'll just say real briefly, there are two Old Testament passages where three days, and one of them is, one of the two is specifically three days and nights. They're both the day after tomorrow. Both cases, three days and nights is the day after tomorrow. So that's because Jewish tradition counted any part of a day as a full day. So if something happened on Tuesday before six o'clock, before sundown, that's a day. After six o'clock is a day. And after six o'clock, the next night is a day. And that's why the traditional date for the crucifixion is placed on Friday. So there, I have no problem with three days and three nights. I just, I just think it's a non issue. But using jonah as an example uh i could get there's several reasons why it's evidential but like you said let's just talk devotional um i think the fact that jesus used that importantly is that he not only rose from the dead he predicted it ahead of time now scientifically i had a buddy of mine a phd in chemistry tell me that the sciences are ordered by predictability. If you could not just get something, but to get something you predicted ahead of time, let's say from mixing two chemicals, then that's an evidence that you're in the right track, that you get predictability and outcome. Well, Jesus predicted the resurrection, and then he did it. See, what that proves is he was a player. It proves that he was a player in the play. If he, if he predicts it, that means he knew what he was doing, he went there willingly, as he says he did. He went there willingly, but to know it ahead of time means he's just not some willy-nilly guy who dies and is raised, and God says, let's make him king of the universe. He's a person who knew God's plan. His father's plan was to, the you know, the world had fallen. That we're going to redeem the world. It's going to be eternal life. We're going to put him on the yellow brick road, so to speak. We're going to make them. We want them to go through their lives on the way toward the Emerald City, sort of like um, the book of Revelation or Pilgrim's Progress, you know, where we're taking a trip to the Emerald City. Jesus knew about that trip. He knew there was going to be a trip because he predicted the resurrection ahead of time, then he did it, and then all of us are told to follow him, take up your cross and follow him. So I think to me it fits together perfectly in that worldview, and it shows you the way you started the program it it shows you that the resurrection is not an event unto itself it's an event that gives us the entire christian worldview what you get out of the resurrection is that trip on the yellow brick road as i like to say toward the emerald city well what's the yellow brick road whenever the gospel is defined the gospel data new testament it's the deity death and resurrection of jesus deity death and resurrection that's god's side the human side is do you want to say i do to jesus do you want? I, why do I use I do language? Well, the Greek words pistuo, pistus, the noun. The Greek words are very, very strong. It's not like I believe George Washington, the first president of the United States, kind right. of go to heaven. Believe means commit. My Greek teacher said John three sixteen could be translated at the end: Whoever commits himself to Him shall not perish but have everlasting life. And it's no coincidence in Scripture, Old and New Testament. That God the Father is the groom. I'm sorry. Yes, He's the groom, and the church, the children of Israel, and the church uh, are the bride. And so there really is a to do. There is really is a I do factor here, and I think we see that all in the sign of Jonah. Jesus was on the road. He knew we were on the road. He knew there's going to be a battle. We're going there. We're marching toward the Emerald City. Here it is. I'm going to do this. He did it. He showed it was true. And then he says, you want to take up your cross and follow me. You want to say I do to me. So that picture, to me, is the most beautiful, I don't want to say just a symbol. There's a lot of history there. But it brings in the kind of things you guys are talking about, the Old Testament. It brings in you know, symbols. It brings in prophecy, Jesus' own prophecy. Uh, it's just a wonderful picture of eternal life and and going toward that city.
1: No, I, I love how you pointed that out, too, because we're talking specifically with Dr. Gary Habermas. And when it comes to this, it's not just that it's a story. It's not just that Jesus gave a prophecy, but it's something that he did in history. And I think that's one of the more beautiful things. And, you know, we've been talking with Dr. Gary Habermas specifically from the get-go. His testimony, he talked about... These ten years of doubt, and I know you touched on it a little bit, Doctor Hammermas specifically about emotional doubt. And I think it'd be great if maybe you went. To, um, I know you've taught the subject at a, at a, at a, a PhD level, I believe. Um, yeah. You've written you've written books on this subject. When it comes to dealing with doubt, and maybe you can speak to the audience a little bit about these. I believe you have three different categories of doubt of how you categorize doubt.
3: Yeah. Uh, those three categories are factual, emotional, and volitional. Um, you can imagine factual uh, is Christianity true? It's kind of what we talked earlier about Anthony Flew becoming a theist. He saw the um, intelligent design cosmology, the laws of the universe, and those facts. Th- those are factual. But the emotional kind of doubt, it's it's the most common. Emotional doubt is by far the most common and by far the most painful. In fact, it could be the only one that's really painful. Uh, If you have facts, if you're looking for facts, but it's starting to hurt, that means you're still asking factual questions, but it's starting to morph into emotional aspects. And what you have to do with emotional doubt is not pile the facts on because they'll, they'll thrill the person. And then next week they'll be right back in their doubt again to deal with emotional doubt. You have to deal with the emotions. If I could use an illustration, if you break your leg, you have to go in a a walking boot or a cast, you get casted up. And if you're, you get it done the right way, you, you heal, you're fine. And, And, and that takes care of the data per se, but there's a lot of emotion that goes with the two. We can have more than one doubt at one time, like the leg can hurt and the leg can be in a cast. Um, we can ask factual doubts and have emotions, but the key thing about emotional doubt is teaching somebody to train their emotions. And uh, on my website, Gary and on my YouTube channel, you just look up Gary Habermas on YouTube. I have a whole lot of little mini lectures, five, six, seven minute ones and longer ones over an hour where I deal with doubt. And the one I deal with most of all is emotional. It's not anything I can explain quickly, but I spell it all out in a lot of those, plus the three books on the subject. Two of them are on emotional doubt. So you have to tell, in Lewis's words, C.S. Lewis, you've got to tell your emotions where to get off. You got to learn to tell your emotions, no, this is true. I'm not going to entertain this anymore. And you employ steps to make, to turn your emotions. You, don't, you can't totally turn your emotions off, but you can turn the spigot off. You can keep emotions from dumping everything into your life and causing all kinds of pain.
2: No, that's great. Uh, you have a book, uh, The Thomas Factor, and in chapter 10, the subtitle is Using Your Doubts to Draw Closer to God, which I love that. So you just turn it around and say, hey, and near the end of that book, uh, just before your conclusion, you state this, and I wanted you maybe to expand on this a bit for our audience. Uh, if with a psalmist we desire God and long for him with all our hearts, then we should seek him. So you're talking about, you know, the psalmist questions and it causing us to seek God. But then, you, then you state we can pursue those practices that can increase our intimacy and fellowship with him. Some may now ask a great question that has perhaps been building throughout the book: since religious doubt produces so many positive consequences, why do we emphasize corrective thinking and try to change the feelings? Uh, you kind of spoke to that a little bit, but maybe you can expound on that a little bit. The corrective uh, thinking, really bolstering. I guess that would be, you know, getting the foot in the cast.
3: <laughs> right. It, it's because Christianity's true. It's sort of like the Jonah thing. It it go it morphs over into other categories. He predicted it. It's the worldview. He knew it was going to happen. He rose from the dead. When you have facts, you have facts to bring alongside you. To use it with your emotions and and by the way of the three doubt books the one you mentioned the thomas factor another one called dealing with doubt those two are available for free on my website nothing's for sale on my website i'm not trying to make a penny um, nothing's for sale there but those two books two out of three including the thomas factor and you're right it is subtitled using your doubts to grow closer to god the book is free and i explain there how to work through Emotions to kind of use facts. Not you, it's not just because facts are true, you shouldn't have emotions, but you use the facts to settle the emotions. You calm yourself down with data. And that's you've got to come in and you've got to learn some techniques. Philippians 4 is a great text for doing this. Philippians 4, 6 through 9. Mm-hmm. Paul says, Don't worry. And and the Greek word there means the Philippians were ang- anxious. He says, don't worry. And he tells him to A, pray. He says, B, thanksgiving and praise. Three, Ephesians uh, 4 8. He says, whatever is good, the translations are different, but whatever is good, um, correct, true, think on these things. That word for think there means to meditate, to think deeply and single mindedly. That's what you do. You go after the motions and you quiet them by throwing doubts. Uh, doubt is the you could say that the facts are the water that you throw on the emotions. You want to calm the emotions down, and the the fire is raging. Emotions
2: hurt. Emotional doubt can be very painful. Yeah, that's that's excellent. Uh, maybe I was that particular Greek word translated worry there. I thought was interesting because it means to be divided in your thinking. You know, and that yeah. seems that from your thinking comes emotions. In fact, uh, Thomas probably was pretty emotional after three and a half years or so. Of, of uh, his hopes being dashed. But then when he saw the resurrected Christ, and uh, I think that healed a lot of his emotions. I think uh, uh, there's a lot of joy. You know, Matthew chapter 28, seeing the resurrected Christ talks about their joy. So I think uh, right. the facts and reality brings a lot of joy. But uh, when a lion tamer is trying to tame the lion or keep, lions, are they distract him? You know, he's here, but then he sees this, this stole that has these four different legs, and the lion sees these four legs according to, you know, animal behaviorist, and he's confused because he's got all these different targets he's got to worry about, uh, and that keeps him, you know, distracted and not at ease, but when we basically focus on God's truth, and the very first thing you mentioned in Philippians 4, I should say, Paul mentions in Philippians 4, 8, is think on those things that are true. That's his very first uh, admonitions is, is truth there, and I really believe the truth goes a long way. As Jesus said, the truth will set you free, so we're glad we have uh, champions out there of the resurrection of Christ like you, Gary, uh, proclaiming his truth. So we praise God for what you're doing.
1: Yeah, I, I really am, am blessed by you, Gary. And you know, when it comes to uh, your work, I know uh, Pastor Schimmel the one who initially, I, I came to the Lord uh, about 12 years ago now, and he initially uh, had mentioned you during a sermon, some of the information that you get out, I believe is on the historical Jesus. Early on in my faith, and I started reading your work, and I thought it was profound. And one of the things I love is the practicality also when it comes to the doubt that you just brought into that and uh, we got about about three or so minutes left, but you specifically, and, and it touched on my heartstrings as well, uh, the last time I heard you speak live, you specifically talked about what the resurrection means for you, uh, specifically to you, what the resurrection means for you. So I'd love, like I said, you got about three minutes left, uh, if there was a best way to maybe finish this up, is giving us a hope, a biblical definition of hope
3: concerning the resurrection that, that we have. I'll, do, I'll just preview it by saying that first Peter, of course the resurrection's over by now. And Peter says the resurrection gives us a, a inexpressible joy. That's even enough to make, to keep us joyous during times of persecution. I mean, if it's that joyous, if your life is on the line, that's pretty special. Well, uh, by God's grace, my doubts, uh, straightened out. And I came to Liberty University. I was teaching here. And, um, in, uh, 1995 actually started a little bit earlier. We didn't know it, but, uh, in late 1994, my, uh, wife started having some physical problems and in, into 1995, she uh, they thought she had the flu, she had to go get this tested, she had to go that t- get that tested, to make a long story short, um, in, in the spring, in fact, we were in the hospital, it was right during Easter, we got there the day after Easter, in 1995, got in the hospital, and a few days later, after surgery, I found out that my wife had terminal cancer, she was only 43 years old, the mother of my four children, and she had terminal cancer and she was very small stature. And during that time we watched horribly as she lost half her body weight and, Mm -hmm. and, uh, ended up dying of stomach cancer. And the, when we got back from the hospital, we were in the hospital for two weeks, we got back from the hospital and my kids were in school and I was home alone. My wife was up, uh, sleeping 15, 16 hours a day. I had a child monitor up there so I could hear every time she moaned or breathed and hardly and I would run upstairs. And But I sat on the front porch, it was just getting warm, first week in May, and I had this make-believe conversation with God. I pictured God was talking to me, And and I said, Lord, Debbie's only 43 years old. I, I thought you wanted me to follow you and be a professor and, and and now I've got the children with her sick and and you know Lord, this didn't occur to me, but they need to get up in the morning and uh, they need clean clothes and they need breakfast and they need lunch and they need dinner and then there's homework and and, and I'm supposed to be a professor and why is all this happening? And I pictured the Lord saying to me, I was thinking to myself, what would he say to me under these circumstances? And I pictured him saying to me, Gary, what kind of a world is this? I said, Lord, I don't know a little bit. I'm a little agitated. I pictured myself being a little agitated. Lord, Deb's upstairs dying at age 43. What kind of a world it is? I, I don't know, Lord. I guess it's a world where your son died on the cross and was raised from the dead that that was the center of life for me and he said i imagine him saying good answer and then he would say you know gary uh, i know what you're going through and you never say that and if you read the books on grief you never say that to a person whose loved ones dying you don't say even if you did go through it they would say yeah but you're better and i'm in the middle of it so you don't say i know what what you're going through. But I picture God saying to me, "I know what you're going through." And I was a little bit amused, and I said, "What do you mean? You know what I'm going through?" And he said, "I watched my son die." Now, at that time, there was only two kinds of grief. I thought the two the worst pain in the world was seeing your spouse die or a child die. Nothing like it in my mind, nothing like it, a spouse or a child. And I said, "Well, That's true, Lord. You watched your son die. You got me there. Uh, Yeah, you did. I'm sure it was very painful. And he said, well, and you know he cried out to me wondering if I had forsaken him. Do you know how painful that is when your child thinks, actually thinks, you may have left them behind? Yeah, Lord, I've spent my whole life studying this. (laughs) It was horrible. There's probably no worse death in the world and they have him think you left them, that's horrible. And I'm thinking about that. And the Lord says to me, but Gary, you know something? I answered his prayer. I said, pardon me again? You answered his prayer? He died. And then I, that occurred to me, and I went, oh, no. Are you telling me Deb's got to die? And he said, Gary, I watched my son die. And he said, There's gonna I pictured him saying there's gonna come a day when you're gonna be with your wife in eternity and you're gonna walk hands hand in hand through eternal life. And that make believe conversation I had was the closest I could reenact to what the gospel is like and what it does for us. And that little, I've said it many times, I've lectured on it many times. To me, that's what the New Testament teaches. Because, again, Peter said we can joy in persecution. Paul said we grieve when our loved ones die. We grieve, but not as those without hope. To me, that's the key of the resurrection. The key to the resurrection is that the hope of eternal life says you may not know what's happening to you. You may not know why why you're hurting but you know the one who knows. You know the one who was raised from the dead. And that's just not an empty faith statement, because after all, he was raised from the dead. we got evidence. So I may not know to this day why I'm, I'm remarried, but I I don't know to this day why the mother of my four children died. But it's enough for me to trust God on the trail to the Emerald City. So that that is the practical result of what the resurrection does.
2: Praise God, and, and praise God, you don't have to make believe uh, in the ultimate sense, because Jesus said, I'm the resurrection, and he's the resurrected one, I'm the resurrection of life, and he that believes me, though you're dead, yet shall he live, and and after his resurrection, to the Apostle John in the Isle of Patmos there, when John fell down after seeing this, him in his face shining like the sun, put his right hand upon him and said, fear not, I am he that liveth and was dead, and behold my life forevermore, and have the keys, or so he said, I'm the first and the last, identified himself as as God, uh, And behold, I'm alive forevermore. And praise God. So we have the the, the ultimate hope in Jesus. And that's just awesome.
1: Yeah, we want to thank everyone so much. Obviously, we want to give a big thank you to Dr. Gary Habermas for coming alongside and especially ending that on such a, it starts off sad, but such a wonderful note, just like the resurrection, right? We have Jesus dying on Good Friday, but then resurrecting on the third day. I want to thank you so much for joining Thanks, Pastor Gary. Joe Schimmel, myself, and Dr. Gary Habermas on the Good Fight Radio Show.
0: You've been listening to the Good Fight Radio Show brought to you by Good Fight Ministries. If you're blessed by this show and would like to partner with us, please consider visiting our Patreon page at patreon.com slash goodfight. Or you can write to us at P.O. Box 2202, Simi Valley California 93062 or call us toll free at one 866 True. that's 1-866-528-7884 we hope you'll tune in next time on the good fight radio show